Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6, and then 13 and 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May have a seat. I have been intrigued this week in the news with this unfolding drama and narrative and real what began as a tragedy and what hopefully will end in a victory with this young boys soccer team in Thailand, in northern Thailand. On June 23rd, after soccer practice, they rode their bikes uh, to a very popular cave in a mountainous region of northern Thailand, and they entered the cave. Maybe you've seen pictures like this. Even even the scene itself uh, has almost a fictitious uh, tone to it. It almost looks something like the Goonies or Stranger Things with bikes strewn outside this cave. But as these boys and their coach, the boys were ages 12 through 16, there are 12 of them, and then the coach makes 13 people, entered the cave, and they started to traverse throughout the cave on June 23rd. The waters within the cave, because it's the rainy season or the beginning of that, in Thailand, the waters started to rise, so the boys were no longer able to get out the entrance. They went in, and so they receded and proceeded to go further into the cave, so deep into the cave, miles, even three to four miles into the cave, they sat, and for days... And days and days, they were missing. And then, last Monday, July the 2nd, they were found. Two British divers, literally having to swim through the rising waters in this cave, find these 13 people, 12 boys, one 25-year-old coach, sitting in the dark with minimal food, minimal water, huddled together after having sat there for 10 days in utter darkness. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that diver's light shine upon them? To hear the voice of another person speak words of comfort to begin what is still unfolding, a very complicated rescue mission. It's something that 
objectively, as a side note, we ought to be praying for. It's something that has caught the world's attention. It's amazing in the world uh, with so much warring and faction that exists politically, religiously, etc. It's amazing how the world can come together around tragedy. And so, so many different nations, so many different people are literally assembled at this cave site, assembled into this rescue mission, and then countries all over the world are intrigued and hopefully praying for these people. I don't know if you've had this thought as well, but it reminded me of 2010 when you had 33 Chilean miners stuck in a mine, if you remember this, for 69 days until they were able to drill through the concrete and individually extract each one of them out through some sort of makeshift elevator on a cable. As you could imagine, those miners have gotten a little bit of tension in the midst of this current unfolding drama in Thailand. And one of the miners from the Chilean disaster, which ended up being a great victory, said, I would tell the boys not to despair, to wait and pray, because God knows what he's doing. Well, in many ways... That's what Psalm 27 tells us. One of the things that we see again from the psalmist David is fear and opposition surround him. Specifically, darkness surrounds him. David, we know throughout a lot of his life, is dealing with literal war. We know David, throughout significant portions of his life, is running for his life. David faces opposition physically. David faces opposition relationally. David faces opposition emotionally. David faces opposition spiritually. Yet we continue to see, by God's grace, David, through reciting these psalms, which are hymns, we see David reciting a constant refrain of trust. And that's what Psalm 27 is about yet again. Psalm 27 is a call to trust in God, particularly in the midst of opposition and fear. It's what those boys in that cave need to do even now. I don't know their religious background. I have assumptions because of where they're from and their age, what it might be. I do know that apparently the coach, through his leadership, is leading them in moments and maybe even extended times as these days pass of meditation. Well, Psalm 27, like all the Psalms, to one degree or another, is a meditation as well. It's a meditation upon faith and trust and hope in God in the midst of fear and opposition. It's something that we all can relate with within our own hearts, within our own minds, within our own lives. That is fear and opposition. It's also something that we cannot escape from in this world. We are broken people living in a broken world. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. We are not the way we're supposed to be. And as a result of that, fear and opposition is crouching around the corner for us, seemingly always. Fear is a significant undercurrent in our culture and in our own lives. At the beginning of this study, the second week, we looked at Psalm 3, which is specifically about fear, and David fearing for his own life as he seeks to escape his son, who is seeking 
to take his life. And it's a beautiful reflection, a little more deeply on fear. And at that point, I quoted a great author, Marilyn Robinson, who's Pulitzer Prize winning and who is a Christian. And she speaks of, in an essay she wrote on fear, this concept of fearing indiscriminately. Fear has become so popular in our lives and our culture that Marilyn Robbins says, without thinking, we just fear indiscriminately. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says this specifically on fear. We all cherish fear, which just to interject for a moment, sounds counterintuitive. And when you first hear it, you might think, we don't cherish fear. Well, you might not in your mind at this moment, but our lives prove otherwise. Our sleeplessness proves otherwise. Our overeating proves otherwise. Our indulgences in other substances proves otherwise. Our anxiety proves otherwise. The reality is we cherish, as odd as it may sound, fear. He said, we all cherish fear so closely that we find we can't shed it, even when we're told to do so. Every one of us has something on his or her mind about which we badly need a voice to say. Every one of us has something on his or her mind in which we badly need another voice to say this. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. Let's make no mistake about it. Until you learn to live without fear, you won't find it easy to follow Jesus. So we have fears within us, and then when we have external opposition, it even exacerbates our fears. One of my favorite narratives in the New Testament is from John the Baptist in Matthew 11. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever lived. John the Baptist spent his whole entire life proclaiming the truths of the coming Messiah, that is Jesus. And then John the Baptist's life takes turns that he would rather it not take, and he finds himself through Herod's whim thrown in prison. And as John the Baptist is sitting in prison in Matthew 11, John the Baptist, who has spent his entire life proclaiming that Christ is the Messiah, through representatives as he's in prison, calls people to him, and John the Baptist tells these other people, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you go ask Jesus if he is the Messiah or if we should expect someone else? You see, opposition causes us to question. Opposition causes us to fear even more deeply, especially when our lives are characterized by sight, not by faith. But we return once again to Psalm 27, and we see David here exemplifying, by God's grace... Through much trial and error, we know in his own life, David by no means is perfect. This is not a be like David story. But what we do see here is true trust in God in Psalm 27. And then I want us to unpack what this trust looks like. I want us to see that trust in God from Psalm 27 is proclaiming what is true and it's practicing what is true. In order to trust in God from Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll see verses 13 and 14, which add a nice inclusio end to verses 1 to 6. If we're to trust in God from Psalm 27, we must proclaim 
what is true. That is, we must exercise, or that is, we must exclaim our belief. Trusting in God is proclaiming what is true with confidence as we exclaim what we believe. And then secondly, trusting in God is practicing what we believe as we experience worship. So first element of trusting in God from Psalm 27 is proclaiming what is true about Him as we exercise our belief. You see this in the very first three verses. The Lord is, and it's as if He says, despite my questions, despite my doubts, despite what I see all around me, it's important for me to say, and you've heard me say this before, that words are transformational. It matters what we say. You've also heard me say before, and especially this psalm is another example of a psalm of confidence. David did, I believe, believe this truly, but he didn't believe it fully. And one of the ways to turn true belief into more full belief is to recite truths because words change us. And so here David is speaking with some level of confidence, but also seeking to engender more confidence as he trusts in God, as he proclaims this truth about what he already believes. The Lord is my light. In the midst of a dark world, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. Another way of saying that would be the Lord is my defense, which is a side note by way of application would be an invitation for us to be less defensive for ourselves and to put more trust in God, which is a true defense. So he's exclaiming and exercising his belief here by saying, the Lord is my light, he is my salvation, he is my stronghold. These are all images of trust, light. Salvation, stronghold. And it's important to note that these things are being exhibited and proclaimed in the midst of opposition. Did you see that in the text as well? David says, My enemies assail me. They seek to devour my flesh. They encamp all around me and they wage war. Yet, despite all this, I proclaim Words of confidence and trust that the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my stronghold. And we tend to think it would be easier to proclaim those things if enemies did not encamp us, if people did not seek to devour our flesh, if we did not have resistance. But that's not an option. And this relates to our psalm from last week, Psalm 23, as we talk about the normative way in which God leads God normatively leads His people to rest, to green pastures, to still waters. He causes us to lie down. He renews and refreshes our soul. And then you remember verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is Him saying the same thing again. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my defense. Even though enemies assail me. People seek to devour my flesh. Those around encamp me and they seek to wage war. 
One point of application before we move on to the second element of what it looks like to trust in God. David proclaims these things in this psalm, not initially and intentionally for you, right? So David pens this thousands of years ago, and where did he write it? In his journal. These are David's own reflections personally that God intended to use for public edification. But we have to realize here that these are moments where David is practicing what we talked about last week. David is practicing and embodying stillness, silence, rest, and meditation in order to fuel his soul in order to abide, in order to connect with God, in order to remind himself so much of belief in the Christian life is about remembering that which we already know, that God is my light. He is my stronghold. He is my salvation. But we've got to carve out the time to remember this. Remember Isaiah 30, verse 15 from last week? In repentance... And rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. David embodies this. As a result of embodying this, he is able to proclaim with boldness, truly, his trust in God. But we also see David's trust in God, not only through what he proclaims, but through what he practices. And this is where we are to be holistic people, right? It's not that Words don't matter at all, but words alone are cheap. David has words of proclamation, and David has actions which practice this trust in God. And the way in which David practices his trust in God is through experiencing worship. Do you see verse 4, which is a pivotal verse in this psalm? I would encourage you to turn your attention there. One thing, this is somewhat of a superlative statement. This is something that should grab our attention. David says, one thing, and at this point you're kind of like, what's the one thing? One thing that I have asked of the Lord, what is it that I will seek after? What? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing, David says, In order for me to practice this trust that I have proclaimed, how do I practice this trust? He says, I dwell in the house of the Lord. I find comfort in His presence, which is most specifically and clearly manifested in His house, in His sanctuary, in His temple, in His tent. Sure, God is everywhere present, and you need to hear me say that. But God is more significantly present, was in the Old Testament, continues to be in the New Testament through the gathering of His people. God's presence is more clearly experienced in community with others through worship in His temple, in His sanctuary, in His tent, in the church. David says, this is the one thing. This is how I practice my trust. I come before God in His presence. What David is reflecting upon here 
And it testifies too is the centrality of worship in the temple in the Old Testament. Temple and sanctuary worship in the Old Testament was an axis through which everything else turned. It was the fixed point. While the church today is not a temple built by the hands of men, the church today is the body of believers who gather in God's name. It is still no less a fixed point or an axis. It is what is meant to be in our lives a central solidifying founding principle for us all. It's so easy in the midst of our own lives to feel bifurcated, to feel diffused. And we have this longing for simplicity, for single-mindedness, for rest. And then we hear David in the midst of feeling confused, in the midst of feeling distracted and disoriented and bifurcated, busy, crazy, Right? That's what we talked about last week. These are the words that characterize our lives. David says, how about this? One thing. I'll give you one thing in the midst of your diffused, disoriented, distracted lives. I'll give you one centralizing, stabilizing point. The house of the Lord. In the midst of all the things swirling around us, I would gather others of you can relate with this. I get motion sick. In small ways and in big ways, seemingly in any circumstance, whether it be through a video camera that's not held quite still enough or definitely any means of transportation that would be rocky. One of the things that people are taught to do in the midst of motion sickness is to fix your eyes on a still point. In the midst of everything else moving and swirling around us, fix your eyes on something that doesn't move. Well, what the psalmist is telling us here is, that's the church. God's house, God's presence, God's sanctuary, the temple in the midst of these disorienting, diffusing fears and opposition, we are called to fix our eyes and our lives upon God in His church. In this, in His corporate community, in his gathering place, in a place where his presence is more clearly and specifically manifested a bunch of, bunch of broken people. This is not a perfect place to experience God's presence, but this is a true and a real and a more full place to experience God's presence and to experience rest. I had the privilege yesterday of doing one of my favorite things, which was going on a long bike ride. And, and this happened to be uh, an event ride that is somewhat of a race, but not really uh, a race. And so four to 500 of us gathered yesterday morning at Barley's downtown and headed into uh, Blunt County on various different routes, depending how far you chose to go, climbing through the beautiful hills of East Tennessee in, you know, Pelotons. Uh, just pure glory. If you're a cyclist, it's really, really fantastic to go on this journey, to do it with friends and in fellowship. And interestingly enough, along their way, they have these SAG stops, these rest stops that provide nourishment and water and, you know, opportunity to refuel and to rest, to get off your bike, to kind of, you know, regather yourself and then head back on to the journey. And it occurred to me yesterday, I'm sure, because I was reflecting upon Psalm 27 to some degree, and I've done many of these rides before. You know where these rest stops 
outside of town in the hills of East Tennessee always are? At churches. Never thought about that before, and I thought, what a great image. On the midst of these rolling hills and in the midst of this journey, specifically in that bike ride, but metaphorically throughout life, here we are traveling, journeying, in need of rest and respite and refueling and nourishment. And where do we get that? I would put before you, and the psalmist would as well, and there's myriads of examples throughout Scripture that the church is intended primarily to be that place of nourishment and rest and refueling for life's journey. We've seen that the church is described in Psalm 27 as a temple, a sanctuary, a shelter, a refuge, a tent, a covering a place to be refueled and nourished. You've heard me say this before. I don't think I mentioned it last week, but I've got a pastor friend who says that Jesus came to give people rest and take away guilt, and the church somehow wears people out and makes them feel guilty. That's not how it's supposed to be. And as much as we can have to do with it in the early formation and the ethos and the DNA of the culture of this church, may we be a place that does not make people feel guilty and wear them out. May we be a place of nourishment and rest and freedom. That's what David is saying. This is the one thing he says he needs and he does this, and this is a unique thing. David does this and needs this in community with other people. And I think it's important for us to hear this And this is something that will have to be expounded upon in more detail later. But the truth is, and the admission is, we live individualistic lives. This is true about the world at large. It's particularly true about the western half of the world. And it's maybe even most true about the autonomous existence of Americans. And there's something beautiful and unique about that. And then there's something about that that resists an important theological principle called community. And how much we need other people. Almost all the yous in Scripture are y'all. Yet we put such a premium when we think about in this, in this way, I'm thinking about who we do this with and how we worship. Such a premium on individualistic lives that we carry that into our concept and our understanding of Christianity. And our understanding of Christianity has become more Americanized than it is biblical. And in the midst of that, there is a devaluing of God's corporate community. In the midst of that, there's a devaluing of the church. And there is an inordinate priority and raising that we put to what might be called private worship, which is important. But I'll go on the record saying it's not more important than public worship. We put so much premium on what we've coined the word, you know, the the idea of a quiet time which is a beautiful thing to seek God in His Word. In fact, I just, I'm not going to completely contradict myself, I just said that's what David was doing as he reflected upon these things. However, there were Christians that existed in the world for thousands of years that never had an individual quiet time of Bible reading. Why? Because there was no such thing as the printing press 
until the mid-15th century. And then Bible, and at that time, most people were illiterate. And then for a couple more hundred years, people were still primarily illiterate. And Bibles were not distributed widely, really, most likely until the 18th century. Maybe even into the 19th century. We need public worship. The psalmist says in 113, Praise, O servants of the Lord. Psalm 149.1, Sing to the Lord a new song in the assembly of His saints. If you will, turn to the front of your bulletin. I want to read that C.S. Lewis quote for you at the front. Some of you would know historically that C.S. Lewis was a professor in England at Cambridge and Oxford. He was an atheist and slowly but surely came to put his faith in Christ. And he talks about not long after becoming a Christian, uh, that was a liberating experience for him, but he really felt like he didn't need the church. And this is his reflection upon that. When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do it all on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, having a quiet time. And I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked, their hymn, I, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as it went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Among other things that Lewis is saying is this, I needed the church. I needed to be with other people. And the reason he's saying that is, the church, God's sanctuary, God's temple, God's house, provides unique opportunities that nothing else and no one else can. And the psalmist also in this describes what he does as he, once again, he's practicing the trust. That's the point of him going to the house of the Lord. He's not only proclaiming trust, but he's practicing trust. And the way in which he's practicing trust is he's showing up at the temple. And what does he do when he gets there? Well, you see it in the text, verses 5 and 6. He talks about singing and offering sacrifices, making melody. He's participating in this worship. That's something you can't do by yourself. You can sing by yourself, and I'm sure, and I know people do, and that's a beautiful thing. It's much more beautiful when your voice is joined with other voices. Not only because it sounds better, most likely, unless you're standing next to me, but because, in many ways, it's a joint affirmation that rubs truth into your soul as you see and hear and participate with other people. And you have this sense of like, this really might be true. I really need this to be true. And if all these other people are proclaiming this to be truth and practicing this as truth, I need this. And it's transformative to do that collectively together. And this is the only place you can really do that. I was struck years ago by reading an interview with Chris Martin of Coldplay, and he talks about a hidden track on the album X and Y entitled Till Kingdom Come. And they ask him, what's up with this song? And Chris Martin of Coldplay says, a message until kingdom come, 
Both come from having quite a religious upbringing, he says. A message is taken from a hymn we used to sing called, My Song is Love Unknown. And we'd say, Kingdom Come, every week in the Lord's Prayer. Chris Martin, Coldplay. One of the greatest things about being forced to go to church services is that we'd sing all these big songs. That's partly why I'm obsessed with getting everyone to sing along at our shows. It makes me feel like I'm part of something. Chances are a Coldplay show actually manifests what true worship is way better than most churches. But it's not supposed to be like that. Even what he's experiencing in his shows, he says it was rooted in the church. You get things here you can't get anywhere else. It is an utterly unique and distinctive experience and place where God provides community, where God provides diversity of people, where God provides structure and authority. No matter what your denomination is, it's very clear in the Bible. Nobody's got it perfect, and nobody knows exactly the way God wants it. We do know, in principle though, God has ordained His worship to be orderly and structured, which is different than a conference and a retreat. It's here. And it's at other houses of worship in this town. It's not only here. This is the place where you can hear the ordained, sanctioned preaching of the Word of God. This is the only place, biblically, where you can truly experience the sacraments. And boy, how do we need those? How much do we need the Lord's Supper? You can't serve yourself the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper nourishes us. Where do you get that? As you practice trust in the church. As a result of it being utterly unique and it being so powerful... It's got to take more priority in our life, right? Like in the midst of the fears and the opposition that we experience living in the world, it's not just about proclaiming truth, it's about practicing truth and practicing truth in a way here that you can't practice it anywhere else. And if this is true, then surely it's got to take more priority in our life, right? Interesting, is this a preacher subtly or not so subtly encouraging people to be more regular attenders at church and worship? Yes. My salvation doesn't depend on it. My job doesn't depend on it. My income doesn't really depend on it. Your soul depends on it. And it's just so interesting that where we've been culturally, and I'll simply say this just as a disclaimer. This is my... First job as an ordained minister being on staff at a local church. I've been an ordained minister serving in a college ministry for the last 15 years with zero specific regular demands on Sunday morning at a church. And I've used that liberty in ways that has been good and refreshing to just go as a worshiper or to not go even at times. And I can simply say this, the last nine months of my life, having where I have to be here every Sunday has been so liberating, has been so centralizing, has been so stabilizing. There's just this sense of, this is the way I was made. And it's not because it's my job. 
It's got to become more of a priority in our lives, candidly. I know that we feel our lives are crazy, busy, frenetic, and when Sunday comes, it's the one time we can relax. It's the one time we can sleep in. It's the time we can travel. It's the time we can do all these other things because we're so harried, we're so frenetic, we're so busy, we need to go release in all these other places. You know what ends up happening in those other places of release? We just feel more busy and frenetic and disconnected and disoriented. It actually doesn't deliver the things that it promises, but this place is intended to be a centralizing place of rest that demands and encourages priority in our life. That's a way we can exhibit trust. And we see the psalmist doing this with great delight. I'll end by just simply reading verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 27. So Psalm 27 starts with words of confidence and then it comes back around at the end with these words of confidence. In the midst of fears and opposition, in the midst of a disoriented, diffused, and distracted life, David is proclaiming trust through what he believes and he's practicing trust through the experience of worship. And then we, as a result of this, in the church, through regular worship, David is able to more confidently say this in verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's my prayer that we would do that together regularly, week in and week out, that we would proclaim that which we would believe, we would practice what we believe, and we would wait for the Lord's rescue and deliverance. Let's pray.